From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. Today, we're going to go about as far away from personal finance as possible, but it's March Madness, so I thought we'd do a, a special March Mark to Markets and talk a little college hoops. And, and why not? Because $8.5 billion is going to be bet on March Madness this month. And one in five Americans are going to pick an NCAA bracket. About 150 million brackets in total will be completed this week. So to give you the inside scoop on how to play your brackets, I've brought in an esteemed panel of experts. First, Damon Amendolara, host of the DA show on CBS Sports Radio on 150 affiliates coast to coast, or as we'd say, from Roslyn to Roanoke, and as you would say, from uh, Waterloo to Wisconsin. Damon, thanks for joining Thank you, Pens. Good to be here. Very excited to be on the Mark to Markets, my debut. And uh, in the smaller markets for the mid-majors, we've got Dave Friedman, voice of Winthrop Basketball and former voice of Syracuse Women's Basketball and a broadcasting legend inside the major mid-major conference conference teams. And uh, Dave, also, you're the voice of the Bearded Carcast podcast. Is that right? That's right. We love to talk college hoops. You know, when I did women's basketball, the biggest problem was there was no point spreads on those games. So <laughs> moving to the men's game has really elevated things. So, so what we're going to try and do is give a twist on the brackets. We're not going to walk through all 64 teams and try and figure out who to pick, but we're going to take a, a different, broader view on it. And look, this is for a lot of people about making money, and I know not everyone who listens to this is a college basketball enthusiast, so so let's talk strategy. I guess the first thought that comes to mind is, I think of there as two different type of brackets. There's the one you fill out online with a million people, the CBS Sports bracket, right? And and you're taking a flyer hoping to win. The other is your family or office where maybe there's, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 people involved. Guys, is there a different strategy people should take depending on the type of bracket they've got? So, Friedman, I, I think there is. I think if you're going to play across the country and you're going to play in one of these massive pools at ESPN.com, CBSSports.com, what have you, I think the only way to win something like that is to take, take some chances. You know, find a bracket buster, take some upsets, and be against the curve because there's just too many people that will pick North Carolina and Duke or pick Duke and Kentucky, what have you. But if you're playing in a smaller pool – especially with family members that might not know college hoops, then I think you try to make the smartest play, the conservative play, make sure you're getting as many right as humanly possible because you will bet on your your knowledge more than everybody else who might be, you know, not as as sophisticated in the brackets. What do you think? I agree, but I think there are a couple of caveats. First, when you're playing a very large scale game the way to win is to eliminate 80% of the people by taking someone to win the national championship that is not a one or a two seed. A team like Houston is off the board, so to speak. No one thinks of them as a blue blood program. They don't play in a major conference, but they're very, very good. They're coming off a loss, which helps your value on them as well. If you pick Houston to win it all, then you're going to eliminate all of the people that wanted Duke or Virginia or Kentucky or Michigan or Tennessee or one of those sort of teams. The other thing, though, that is so critical to filling out brackets that people often skip over is what are the rules of the game? Every bracket game 
is different. There are the games where it's one point in the first round, two in the second round, four in the third round, and so forth and so on. Those games are asking you to pick chalk because when you get to the Sweet 16 and the games are really valuable, you don't want to have wacky teams left. If it's one point in the first round and one point in the second round and one point in the third round, it gives you a little more incentive to take those upsets because maybe you have a hunch that's right. It's not going to hurt you later. And then there are the games that give you extra points for picking upsets. There are some that say if you pick a worst-seeded team, you get one point. Well, in that case, you want to take all the nines over the eights, all the tens over the sevens, and be very selective with the rest of them. Then there are the games where if you take a 12 over a 5, you get 7 bonus points because you take the 12 seed, you subtract the 5. In those, you want to be aggressive picking upsets. You have to know the rules of the game. So what's the most popular set of rules? If you're going on to the the major sites who, who host this, like CBS Sports or ESPN or, or the big office pools, what's the typical scoring and then maybe let's go through how to how to attack that one i think it's the first one that you mentioned dave it's one point of the first round two points of the second round three four five isn't that usually the way that it goes i think the two most popular are either one in the first round two in the second round three in the first round etc or the double the points where it's one two four eight sixteen thirty two sixty four and you got to play these differently depending on the rules in terms of how you strategize for it yeah, I mean, you should know the rules of the game you're playing before you play it. If a three-pointer was only worth two points, you wouldn't want to take points, take shots from 25 feet. But because they give you an extra point, it's a good idea to be able to shoot well. All right, so let's go on the assumption that you're doing the one point in the first round, then two, four, eight, and and the big points are scored at the end. Is there a way to define value in this? Like, should I be looking at a 16 team to beat a one and try and knock everyone else out there? Or then there's the the, the 5-12 game that everyone talks about. Oh, take a 12 seed. Are, are there some numbers that are typically there for value, or should I be thinking about specific teams? I think that the first part is that until last year, no 16 team had ever beaten a number one seed. So that you essentially, throughout history, just put the ones right through automatically. Almost always, the two beats the 15 as well. It has happened a few times. I think eight times a 15 seed has beaten the two. Our alma mater being the first to have lost? Correct. Syracuse losing to Richmond in 91, I believe, was the first time a two seed had ever lost a 15. But things like that, statistically, I think it just makes sense to go all the way through. I think then the 5-12, knowing that on average there's a 5-12 upset every single year, I always look for the 12 that I feel best about and know that I'm going to go in picking one 5-12 and I usually go in trying to pick 114 over or 113 over a four. Outside of that, though, I don't know about any other numbers that you would technically use in, just in terms of seeding. There are some other trends in college basketball that I look at. Like historically speaking, if you were a power conference team and you lost your first game in the tournament of the conference tournament, you almost never go deep. So a team like Oklahoma this year or Texas Tech that lost their first game to their conference tournament, you just wipe them out. Other than that, though, Dave, is there a statistical trend that you look at just via seeding? Well, I mean, I think if we're going back to the question of using the format where the values of each game double, you're not overly incentivized to take upsets. I mean, anyone can search the Internet and get very basic analytics on the percentages of all of these teams to win. 
all of the 12 seeds have less than a 50% chance of winning. If you're not getting a lot of bonus points to take them, you should take all of the fives and assume that you're going to get three out of four home. If you're more incentivized to get that upset, then you want to start actually looking at the individual teams. If you look at very basic numbers, the analytics say of the 12 fives that uh, Oregon has something around a 44, 45, 46% chance of winning. That's not necessarily the case for New Mexico State or for another one of the, the higher seeds like Liberty. Liberty's chances of beating Mississippi State are not as good as Oregon's chances of beating Wisconsin. It's just the way it is. Now, if you actually watch the teams and you think about the players and you think about the matchups and you think about the coaches, you can make arguments, reasonable arguments, for a large variety of teams. But if you're playing a straight, normal game where the you don't have a major incentive to pick upsets, you shouldn't pick upsets unless you feel that there's a better than 50% chance of one of those teams pulling an upset. All right, Dave, let me, let me throw out a, a, a question for you. So a lot of people listening to this are not college basketball junk, junkies. I think one of the wait, things— Wait a second. There are people that are not college basketball junkies? <laughs> there are a few. It's a country of 300 million people, Dave. So like 298 are, and then there, there are a couple that aren't? Yeah, this is, this is for the 200 people that aren't. That, that aren't. That's exactly right. So, okay. so here, here's the question. You want to try and get, for people who are filling this out, I, I don't think they're going to dig into all the analytics, right? They want a quick thing that they can find to make a case around. One of those that would jump out to me is location, where their games are being played, right? Because you can see that on your bracket real quick. It's in Jacksonville. It's in Des Moines. It's in Salt Lake City. Is where the game is being played in relation to where the school is located relevant in picking in the early rounds? To some degree it is. I mean, Cincinnati gets a pretty significant advantage if they win one game playing Tennessee, which, you know, a two-seed should be the favorite, but Cincinnati would get to play in Columbus. There are a couple of oddities like that. Kansas could potentially play in Kansas City. The problem is Kansas stinks. Their two best players are hurt, and they're very likely to be upset pretty early in the bracket. So I would say the location matters a little bit, but not a lot. All right, before we get into picking teams, and we'll do a little bit of that. Here, here's my question. Are there, let's start with players. Are there players that the average fan should try and watch in, in the first weekend and, and, and can get behind and, and turn on the TV and say, that's who I want to watch in this tournament? So the biggest... If there's one game for people to watch, it's Marquette and Murray State. They're the two highest scoring players in the tournament are playing in Marquette and Murray State. And the kid at Murray State's going to be a top five draft pick. He's electric and he plays for a Cinderella team. If you're going to watch one game, that's the game to watch. So that's John Morant that he's talking about for Murray State. And absolutely, Dave is right on it because Murray State might not be in this thing long. So on the first weekend, make sure you watch some of that Marquette game against Murray State because this kid's going to be a top five pick. He flies through the air. He's incredibly athletic. He was under-recruited because he wasn't on a lot of people's radar, and Murray State kind of fell into him recruiting somebody else. Is he a senior, or is he one of these younger kids? I don't know. It doesn't matter. He's going to be in the NBA next year. Yeah, he's Right, so he's gone. And, I mean, his dunking ability, his explosion is incredible. He's also a great passer. He is just amazing to watch, and who knows how long Murray State's in there. They're a 12 seed against Marquette, so it could be a 5-12 that some of your listeners might want to look at as potential bracket buster there. But Zion Williamson out of Duke is the star that you have to watch. Now, Duke is going to be in this tournament for a good long time. 
So you don't have to watch their first game in the 116. You probably don't have to watch their second game. You'll get to watch them in the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, and hypothetically the Final Four and Championship game. But Zion Williamson is one of the greatest college basketball players of the last 20 years. And this kid came into college with all types of attention and social media notoriety because of his dunking ability, his highlight reel stuff at AAU and, and high school. But now he's also the best basketball player in college. So I don't know if I've been this excited about watching a guy in college in the tournament, maybe since Anthony Davis six or seven years ago, Dave. Is there a good comp that you can think of of excitement around Zion? I mean, he is – you can't take your eyes off of him. He, he's he's incredible. It, it's, it's amazing to watch. I don't think that means you have to watch – Duke play North Carolina Central or North Dakota State. You'll have plenty of opportunities against good teams. I would suggest there's one other game that you might want to keep your eye on, and it's kind of an asterisk game. Arizona State plays St. John's in a play-in game that you shouldn't watch because both teams stink. And Just explain to the the listeners, what's what's the play-in game? Well, there's 64 teams that are bracketed to play starting on Thursday, but they want to make more money, so they've added four extra teams to the tournament, so there's 68 teams. So eight teams play Tuesday and Wednesday. Four teams play Tuesday, four teams play Wednesday, just to get into the 64-team bracket. So two of the last teams to get into the tournament were Arizona State, who was completely undeserving, and St. John's, who was mostly undeserving. And they play in Dayton, Ohio, on um, on Wednesday. And the winner of that game advances to play Buffalo in the first round. And Buffalo is coached by a guy named Nate Oates, who is a high school math teacher five years ago. <laughs> and... Arizona State is coached by Bobby Hurley, who was unbelievable at Duke and won a national championship. And he was the coach at Buffalo and hired Nate Oates. And then he left for Arizona State, and Oates got the head coaching job. So that could be a really fun matchup. So we're rooting against Chris Mullen and St. John's for the for the Mr. Miyagi and Daniel Karate That's Kid exactly father. Right. And- okay. That's exactly right. Um, so few upsets. If there if there are people who are listening who who want to take a flyer, Dave, who do you like? And it could be a specific team or just a specific game in the first round. Who you think you know what? If I'm going to pick an upset, that's a team I like. Well, let me let me answer this question in two different ways. Uh-oh. If you're looking for a team to advance much further than you would expect, a team that nobody is really talking about but has an opportunity to make a run. Virginia Tech was ranked in the top 10 when Justin Robinson was healthy. He's missed the last 11 games. He's a terrific player. Virginia Tech played in the ACC, which has three number one seeds. It was the best conference in the country this year. And with him healthy, they are very, very good. They will beat St. Louis, who isn't good. And they have a pretty good chance of beating Mississippi State or Liberty. If they get to the Sweet 16, that gives Robinson another week to get healthy. And then they play Duke who, oh, by the way, they beat when they play during the regular season. I would also say I'm really interested in this Wofford matchup against Kentucky in the second round. This would be the round of 32 because Wofford is 
it sounds like a Cinderella. It sounds like nobody has ever heard of this school. They're one of the smallest schools in Division One basketball. But they're coming out of the SOCON, the Southern Conference, and they got a seven seed. And the reason was the SOCON actually had really high ratings this year in terms of the competitiveness of the, all the schools, and they dominated. And they're a top 25, now top 20 team, and they played all their their power conference opponents very close. And so Wofford is a 7, sounds like they should be a 13, 14, or 15, but instead they're actually a really good team, and they'll play Kentucky in that round of 32. And I don't know about you, Dave, but I feel like that's that's actually a way tougher matchup for Kentucky than they are used to in that round of 32 game. Uh, that, that's absolutely right, with a caveat. The Midwest region is very strange. The top eight teams, North Carolina is just way better than everyone. They have a cakewalk to the Elite Eight. The bottom eight teams are a really competitive, tough group, which means Kentucky has a much more difficult route to the Elite Eight. Wofford is coached by a guy named Mike Young, who's been there for close to 20 years. He does a remarkable job. Their best player, Fletcher McGee, averages over 20 points a game. As a team, they make almost 50% of their shots. A good shooting percentage in college basketball for a team is a little over 40%. They make almost 50% of their shots. The problem is their road is really difficult because as 10 seeds go, Seton Hall is quite good. So it's not like it's an easy matchup for Wofford to get to Kentucky. But yes, whoever emerges from that Wofford Seton Hall game very easily can give Kentucky a run for their money. I would also advise your listeners, Mark, to look at LSU as a potential early upset. I was upset. just about to ask about this game because I think people listening to this podcast, one way or the other, are looking at that Yale game going, okay, Yale, Ivy League school, want to root for them. LSU, giant program, it it just sounds interesting on the surface. I was going to ask, what's what's the word in this so game? So it's more interesting than just on the surface because the head coach of LSU, Will Wade, has been recently suspended for an investigation by the FBI. They wiretapped his phone and heard him discussing making an offer for a recruit. And so he's been embroiled in this FBI large-scale investigation into bribery and buying recruits in college basketball. Now, is this the bribery game? Because is Yale wrapped up in the whole Aunt Becky bribing into college? So is this the bribery bowl? Yeah, that's probably true, yes. Lori Laughlin will be watching this game with uh, a lot of interest from her cell. So you've got (laughs) – so the head coach of LSU is suspended, Will Wade, and so – we don't have any type of we don't have a pre- coach. We don't have a precedent. These assistant coaches have taken over. We don't have a precedent for a, a head coach who's with the team for ninety five percent of the season suddenly being taken out by suspension. And there are three seeds. It's not like they're supposed to be one and done. There are three taking on an Ivy League school in Yale. So this is super interesting. So is Yale a, a possibility here? I, I absolutely think so. I mean, Dave, when you look at how that evens out. Sure, LSU has incredible NBA-esque talent, but without their head coach, there's got to be a huge unknown, right? LSU looks a lot like Arizona did in last year's tournament. Arizona was embroiled in scandal and taken out by Buffalo in the first round. LSU is a complete and utter renegade program that has gone off the tracks. So the question is, can Yale beat them? Yale is a surprisingly athletic team in the Ivy League. They're they're really actually pretty good. LSU has more talent. No one would dispute that. The question is, 
what do you get with an interim head coach and players who see their name in the media every day for the wrong reasons? LSU is not going to go deep in this tournament, I don't think. The question is, where do they get pushed out? Could it be Yale? 100% yes. Could it be Belmont or Maryland or Temple? Yeah, it could be there too. But from a talent standpoint, they've got better players than all of that group. So it could be Michigan State in the, in the Sweet 16 as well. But yeah, LSU is the type of team you want to stay away from. I mean, Auburn's another team like that. Chuck Person, their former assistant coach, just pleaded guilty to FBI stuff. Is, that, is Bruce last Pearl week. still coaching there? Yes, yes, he is. So we're just going to go through the through the, the the programs right now that have FBI inquiries around them. Pretty much, it's okay. not the worst strategy. If you had if you had filled up your bracket last year with teams that had problems and gotten rid of them, you would have done better than eighty percent of the country. Okay, so that's a strategy. Absolutely. Just yeah. look just look for programs with recruiting violations. <laughs> Back them up into the pool and you're good. Last year was going to be a, a bigger one because last year was year one of the FBI sting and it embroiled a lot more uh, teams and schools this year fewer. But yes, as Dave said last year, if you just took all the teams that were eaten up by this and said they're an early exit, you would have done very well in your pool. Hey, here's my question. So if you think of just the blue blood programs, you go just by name alone. You're not a big college basketball fan, but you know Duke, you know North Carolina, you've heard of Maryland, Syracuse, Virginia. Are there one or two blue blood programs that are highly ranked according to the seeds that you think are real vulnerable? Well, Duke, I don't think it's vulnerable. I think that North Carolina's just as good as as Duke, unless Zion Williamson kind of takes the next to the next level. Uh, I don't know, Dave, out of those two, I mean, I guess Kansas is a blue blood, and we were talking about how Kansas kind of got lucky in getting a four and going through Kansas City. Everyone knows Gonzaga who does their brackets, but you don't think of them as a, a blue blood program, but but they're a one seed. Are they vulnerable? I think they are, Dave. I would say they're probably the most vulnerable one seed out of the four because we always don't know what to expect after they get out of their conference and they never play anybody really highly ranked in their conference, except that they had a really tough non-conference schedule and did really well in it. But if there is a vulnerable one, I suppose it's the Zags, Dave. There is not a vulnerable one or a vulnerable two because the committee got it right. The eight best teams in the country are clearly the best eight best teams in the country. And while an upset certainly can happen along the way, there is no one that is set up to be upset. Gonzaga going into the WCC tournament, and they lost to St. Mary's in the WCC tournament, and Randy Bennett is one of the best coaches in the country, and that's just not... It's one of those deals where, if you follow the NFL, sometimes the Steelers can be an eight-point favorite over Baltimore, but Baltimore still beats them just because they know all the players, and they know the system, and there's an axe to grind. That's St. Mary's and Gonzaga out there. St. Mary's beating Gonzaga, just it just doesn't say that much about Gonzaga. Gonzaga had two other losses, Tennessee and North Carolina. They're not losing to a team outside of the top 20. Hey, Dave, I have a question for you. Are you reading this, or do you just know all this naturally? <laughs> this is what I do. Mark Winthrop, where I broadcast basketball games, was eliminated a week ago Thursday. And since that point in time, I've tried to limit myself to about 14 hours of basketball a day. <laughs> all right, so, so two, two last questions. One, uh, one that rings near and dear to all of our hearts is Syracuse. Syracuse plays Baylor in the first round. Does Syracuse have any chance this year? I think, I think they beat Baylor. I, you know, Syracuse is so weird this year. They're totally Jekyll and Hyde. They were good enough to go to Cameron Indoor and beat Duke. 
They were good enough to hang with Duke, minus Zion, at the Carrier Dome for the first half. They led by six at the break. They were good enough to beat Louisville, who at times of the season was a top-20 team. They're also bad enough to be beaten by Buffalo or Old, Old Dominion. Dominion or you know have some awful losses uh, in the ACC. But, you know, what we've seen is that Jim Beheim has gotten out of the first round of the tournament almost every year over the last 10 years. So if you wanted to project Syracuse at least for one win, I think that that's probably smart in the 8-9 matchup. And then I don't know. I mean, Dave, you say that Gonzaga can't be beat in the first weekend and because the, the one is invulnerable, but could you not see a junk 2-3 zone by Syracuse? disrupting the Zags and suddenly SU beating Gonzaga like they did a couple of years ago to get to the Sweet 16? I really liked Syracuse before the bracket came out. I think the ACC is a terrific conference, and I think Syracuse is actually much better than most people think they are when healthy. A big piece of the puzzle in the NCAA tournament is coaching. Scott Drew at Baylor is an excellent recruiter, but not a great in-game coach. And I think Syracuse will beat Baylor. But when you talk about Syracuse's 2-3 zone, which is what they play the entire game, it is not the conventional every player guards another player. You're, you're sitting in a zone, two players up top, three at the bottom. So you're guarding a portion of the court, not an individual guy. Gonzaga has almost the perfect roster to beat that. They have three-point shooters. They have bigs that can catch the ball at the elbow or at the free-throw line and then pivot, look into the post for someone open or throw diagonal to someone at the three-point line. I I think it's a tough matchup for Syracuse. Can they win? Syracuse is a very talented team, and as Damon said, they have frequently made runs in the tournament. They're not going to be an enormous underdog in that game, but Gonzaga is better. All right, last question. You know what the question is. Both of you guys, give me your final four. Uh, Well, I have my championship game is going to be Duke against uh, Kentucky. And uh, now, are you picking Kentucky for personal reasons? My wife is from Kentucky, mm-hmm. but actually, I look at that bracket and I think Kentucky has a pretty good road. I, I mentioned Wofford scared me in that Kentucky matchup, but the rest of their side of the bracket, I don't trust. And I think we're going to get North Carolina, Kentucky in the one versus two in the Elite Eight. And I just think that, you know, Kentucky's got, I think, gotten much better at the end of the year, and Calipari probably doesn't get enough credit for getting freshmen and young players on the same page, and they grow. So I like Kentucky out of that side of the bracket. So that's why I have the championship game. I think Duke ends up winning this whole thing because if you saw Zion Williamson, who we talked about earlier on the podcast in the ACC tournament, he's just been so devastating and on point these last three games that if he plays anything like that, I don't think the Duke can be beat. So that's my championship game, Duke over Kentucky. And and so that's a CBS, your network's dream. You get the Blue Bud programs of Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina. That That is made for television. There's no doubt about it. That is the type of, uh, that is the type of game that Jim Nance dreams it, it, about. It's the interesting irony here. Everybody wants the underdogs, but nobody wants to see them at the end of the tournament. You want to see North Carolina's the Dukes at the end of the day. Uh, no, Dave, that, depends, that depends who you are. If, I mean, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're the if average you're Dave, normal person. If you're Dave, no way. I, I disagree with that. I think the world would have loved if Butler had won the championship several years okay, ago. That's so, the ultimate Cinderella. You know what? You're right. You want, you want the Butler, and then you want three Blue Bloods. If you got four teams nobody have heard of, nobody's watching. 
you, Princess you, you Jean want was pretty amusing last year. I like uh, how you're calling her Princess Jean, not even Sister Jean. <laughs> and, well, and Dave, you know, r- r- wrong religion, Damon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, you're four of, you know, Cincinnati, Colgate, UC Irvine, and, and Gardner-Webb. <laughs> Give me your final I, four. I think this is the, the most favorite-laden field we've seen in a long time. The eight teams seeded one and two are the best teams, and it's not particularly close. I would pick all four number one seeds if it wasn't shunned because it's frowned upon to do that. I'll pick Michigan to come out of the West bracket because John Beeline, their coach, is an absolute genius, and you never want to play against him in the tournament. But the, the best teams are the number one seeds. I've thought Gonzaga and Virginia and Duke were the three best teams the entire year. North Carolina has been incredible since, you know, roughly January 1st or December 15th. They're really, really good, too. I think those are the best teams. I think the ACC is the best conference. I kind of like Virginia when it's all said and done, but that's more of playing an angle than playing the best players. And the best players are on Duke, and it's not close. But that doesn't make them the best team. They're not a very good three-point shooting team. Virginia is the best defensive team in the country. And if you want to play an angle, you want to take a team that other people aren't that excited about, yet has the capability of winning it all. Virginia was on the wrong side of the worst upset in the history of the NCAA tournament last year when they lost in the first round to UMBC. So for them to turn around and win the national title would be quite a story. Guys, I appreciate you doing this. It's been 20 years since we've all been on the air together, so this was a, a blast for the past. I thank you. No problem. History in the making right here. On History the in the mark making. To markets. Uh, Pens, one other real quick thing, and I'm not going to go into great details on this, but I think your listeners might enjoy this concept, and they can just Google it to look it up, but there's something called a Calcutta where <laughs> instead of picking individual teams or filling out a bracket, it's an auction where every team in the tournament is auctioned off. It's like playing no-limit poker. You can bid as much as you want, and then the pool is divvied up at the end based on number of wins each team has. I think for a sophisticated investor, they'd be really interested in that idea. For my listeners, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this and learn about the Calcutta. I'll be back later this month with the traditional mark-to-market programming where we will, uh, as an awkward transition, move to the municipal bond market. So from March Madness <laughs> will we be to municipal bonds. No, you, ne- neither of you to oh, qualify for, for an appearance on the municipal bond podcast. <laughs> Dave was going to talk to you about the Bombay, which you can do in the, uh, in the bonds market. If you have any questions or comments on this or any other episodes, you can reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Until next time. 